And uh, last night we got together and just had a little extra time of worship. And I so much appreciate the people who lead our worship because it just seems to me that out of all the distractions, I need times when I come back to be able to focus. And when we sang this last song, Come Now Fount of Every Blessing, I thought, you know, I need to be reminded that the real blessings in my life come from the Lord and not from all my efforts and not from all my worry and not from all of, you know, the things that we do on a pretty regular basis. But then the next verse of that, you know, prone to wander, prone to get away from that kind of lifestyle of worship. And worship really is a lifestyle. It's not just an hour on a Sunday morning. It's really a lifestyle of responding to God's initiatives to us. Worship is just responding uh, to what God initiates. And so this morning, um, I'd like to invite you to return to our study in the book of Daniel. Daniel is a part of uh, God's word uh, that's found in the older part of the Bible, the Older Testament. And uh, the interesting thing about uh, the book of Daniel is that it's both historical, it's about things that actually happened in the past, and its future at the exact same time. Which, when you understand it and think about it, you realize only God knows the future, and it's a great uh, tool or an asset uh, to understand and to believe that God actually wrote the scriptures to us. And so, uh, if you've been with us, you know that God uh, spoke to a secular king, King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonian Empire, uh, in a dream. And um, that dream was interpreted by Daniel uh, so that the king could uh, remember the dream and also uh, understand what it meant. And in that dream, God revealed to Nebuchadnezzar, this secular king who dominated Israel uh, from 605 B.C., uh, the Gentile empires or the Gentile powers, the non-Jewish powers that would have domination in the nation of Israel, the land that God gave to Israel, uh, from his time back 600 years before Christmas, all the way until Jesus comes again. So it's a pretty interesting uh, dream, pretty interesting communication from God. And what's especially relevant for us is the fact that the last part of this dream is yet future for us. So we are living in the midst of what God says is going to happen. And that's why I suggested that the book of Daniel is kind of like the backbone of uh, prophetic scripture. It's a particular kind of scripture that's apocalyptic. It's historical and future at the same time. And so Nebuchadnezzar has this dream from God, and Daniel interprets it, and it was of a giant Gentile. looks something like this. Um, and you remember that we uh, talked about this. And um, I wanted to uh, suggest to you that, um, you know, this is just uh, a depiction. And uh, these three uh, kingdoms are, you know, history. Uh, this particular, uh, the Roman Empire, you know, all of this is an interpretation of the dream. Now, many people for many years have thought that the Roman Empire, um, you know, which was in place at the time that Jesus came, is that fourth world power. Uh, but that whole thought is being challenged today uh, with some progressive revelation. You know, the Bible was written, and then as time unfolds, as history goes on, we're able to understand more and more of what God says about the future as it happens. And so today, this uh, whole uh, interpretation is being challenged to say maybe that was the Ottoman Empire. Maybe that was um, started about 600 years after Jesus was here uh, by Islam. 
and the whole Ottoman Empire and Turkey and took over that whole area of the world and dominated in the land of Israel for many, many years, all the way until 1923, in fact. And, uh, and if that's the case, there's a lot of other issues in the Bible that fall into place, especially the geography, because the geography uh, that's mentioned in the scriptures all surrounds you know, the nation of Israel as sort of the center of the world. And so, uh, but we're somewheres in between here. And you remember that this giant, uh, I call them a giant Gentile, because these are all Gentile nations, um, is made of different kinds of metals, starts with the most precious, goes to the weakest, from gold all the way down to uh, clay, and a non-mixture of iron and clay. And so, uh, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, in uh, Daniel chapter 2, verses uh, 46 to 49, Actually, uh, let me start in verse 44. Uh, That was the dream. And then at the end of that dream, you remember, there was also the part that talks about Jesus coming back. And I want to read that part just to refresh our memories. Verse 44 of uh, Daniel chapter 2. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Never. In the days of those kings, God's going to come and set up a kingdom. These are all Gentile kingdoms. World powers, we would call them today. World kingdoms, right? Major influence. But God is going to set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. And his kingdom will break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. When Jesus comes back, he's going to establish a kingdom that's going to last forever. And there's not going to be this anymore. And so it's very interesting. And uh, it goes on in verse 45. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand. In other words, somebody supernatural. This isn't just a person in the ordinary sense. By no human hand. And that, that that stone broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold. A great God has made known to the king What shall be after you? What shall be after these kingdoms? The God of heaven has revealed that there is a future uh, to King Nebuchadnezzar that's coming and uh, what it's going to be like and that it's going to last forever. And then it says this dream or the dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. You can debate it if you want, but it's useless. Uh, This is a dream, a communication from God about what's going to happen. And so... uh, In verse uh, 46, King Nebuchadnezzar falls on his face and he pays homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. And the king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Now I want to say that King Nebuchadnezzar's reaction here is just emotional. He hasn't really processed what's gone on. He hasn't integrated it into his life. He just walked an aisle at a Billy Graham crusade kind of thing. It's just emotional. And uh, you'll see why I say that as we get into our uh, message from today. But he has this emotional reaction. Wow, truly your God is the God of gods. But he's not about to lay aside his gods in order to worship this God. He's not about to ready to build his life around this God. He just has this emotional reaction like, wow, what a cool God, you know, a revealer of mysteries. You've been able to tell me my dream and its interpretation. 
And then the king gave Daniel high honors and a great many gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, chief prefect over all of the wise men of Babylon. Remember we talked about this, who the wise men were? They were like the psychics and the occultists and the lawyers and counselors and all the rest that advised the king, all his, his cabinet, if you will. And then uh, Daniel made a request to the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as three friends over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. Okay, so that sort of sets the stage for where we're going today. And again, remember, I suggest that the king's reaction was only uh, emotional. And as we keep that in mind, uh, you're going to see that the king, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, in chapter 3, there's another Gentile giant, okay, which is an attempt to replace the giant that God revealed to Nebuchadnezzar in his dream. It's an attempt at replacing the giant that God revealed. Now, it's important to know that um, chapter 3 of Daniel happens about 16 to 20 years after chapter 2. Okay, so process that, process that in your mind. Allow uh, 16, 20 years to go by. Daniel was a teenager. Now he's like in his early 30s, Daniel and his three friends. And the king is older, you know, and uh, they've had some time to think about that dream. And uh, for 16 to 20 years, uh, Daniel and his friends have had the best government jobs. They got, you know, because he was able to do that, and the king had this emotional reaction, uh, they were in charge of all the other people underneath them. And we know this, that uh, it was at least 16 years after uh, chapter 2 because of the Septuagint, which is... Um, a Greek translation of the Old Testament. Remember uh, in our uh, Colossus there, the Greeks took over, and probably about 150 B.C., they finished translating the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek so that people could read it. And from that translation, we're able to understand the time. uh, We're able to put together a a timeline. So anyway, in um, Daniel chapter 3, Daniel and his friends... uh, uh, early 30s, the counselors, the lawyers, the psychics, they've all been serving under these three friends of his, and uh, they probably forgot how Daniel saved their lives by doing what they couldn't do. 16, 20 years, a long time, we forget, you know, the great things that God has done for us as we go forward, and uh, likewise, Nebuchadnezzar has had a lot of time to think about this dream, and remember in this dream, God tells Nebuchadnezzar about his demise, he's going to die. And some other kingdom's going to come in and take over. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar's had a lot of time, 16 years, to think about that. And uh, maybe he was even obsessed with that. And maybe he didn't want the kingdom of Babylon to ever end. Maybe he was trying to be immortal. And so look what he does. In chapter 3 and verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. Remember the gold represented Nebuchadnezzar in in the three you know, uh, kingdoms, the gold, the head, represented Nebuchadnezzar. So he makes an image, kind of another giant Gentile, uh, most people think in the shape of himself, and covers the whole thing in gold, okay? And uh, its height was 60 cubits, and its breadth was 6 cubits. Its height was ninety, around 90 feet, 90 feet. That window over there from the platform to the peak is 34 feet. So imagine three of those stacked on top of each other, 
and he makes this image of himself covered in gold, 90 feet high, okay, and nine feet wide. Now, it was probably on some kind of a pillar and probably was more uh, accurately uh, proportioned like a person. Um, otherwise, it'd be a real tall, skinny guy, right? So it probably had this big pillar underneath it, and he put this thing, and look at this, and, and covered it in gold. And uh, he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon, about 50 miles outside of the city limits of Babylon. There was a plain. Archaeologists think they've discovered that plain, where it is. And in the middle of that level, flat area, out of the level ground pops this giant image, glistening in the sun, gold, of old Nebuchadnezzar himself. What's going on here? Um, It creates a statue um, that's like the one in his dream, only different. Right? It's different because it's of him. And uh, again, it's all gold from head to toe. Nebuchadnezzar was the gold in Daniel's interpretation. And so it was probably a statue of himself, although it doesn't say exactly that in the text. Most people conclude that it was of himself. Some people suggest that it may have been of his primary god. You know, uh, uh, these were polytheists. They believed in many gods. And his primary god was uh, a god by the name of Nebu, N-E-B-U, which are the first four letters of Nebuchadnezzar's name, right? And we talked about the significance of names and how it's different in the scriptures and so forth. Now, just keep in mind, 60 cubits and 6 cubits wide. And remember that in the future, remember I said that Daniel is historical, it's happened, but it also speaks to the future, And in the future, in Revelation chapter 13, you can read that the number, right, of the Antichrist and the number of man is 666. So this huge statue, 60 cubits high, 6 cubits wide, and the number of man, the number of the Antichrist, the number that um, Nebuchadnezzar chose to put this all together, you know, um, is uh, 60 cubits and 6 cubits wide. Now, I have to say, you know, this is all historical, but this chapter is loaded with symbolism or what theologians call types of things to come, types of things to come. And um, if you're familiar with other parts of the Bible, you know that there is a period of time where there's going to be a world leader, a person who is a world leader who will be both political and religious at the same time. He is called uh, the Antichrist. He shows up right before Jesus comes back. And um, we're told that he will set up an image in a reconstructed temple in Jerusalem and demand the worship of the whole world. Exactly what Nebuchadnezzar is going to do, as we'll see. Set up an image of himself and demand that he is God and that all the world worship him. And if you don't, you die. It's really that simple. And with the technology that we have today, um, you know, if you think about Skype and some of the uh, technology, it'd be pretty easy to monitor uh, individuals, and we keep moving in that direction. And uh, not only that, but the Bible tells us very clearly that this will happen exactly to the day, three and a half years into the tribulation period. Exactly to the day, three and a half years, and then this image will appear. 
and the whole world will be ordered to worship it. Uh, Jesus calls this the abomination of desolation. In uh, Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is talking, and uh, here's what he said to his disciples who asked him about his return. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, here's Jesus quoting Daniel, right, about prophecy, about what's going to happen in the future. Jesus giving validity to the fact that Daniel uh, had this message from God. And we're not at that part yet, but uh, when we do, we'll see. It's a parallel to what we've already studied so far. And so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Take some time to get a hold of this and understand it. It'll make a difference in how you live your daily life. And then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And so on. Verse 21. uh, For then there will be great tribulation. Now there's a seven year period at the end of human history as we know it. It's divided exactly into two halves, okay? And uh, the whole thing is often called the tribulation period, but what Jesus is saying is the great tribulation starts after this abomination is set up. And uh, that will be the second half of that tribulation period. And uh, there will be such great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, and no, never will be again. It's going to be a horrible time for believers, Okay, just like in Nebuchadnezzar's day, as we'll see. And if those days had not been cut short, my opinion is this is a reference to the rapture of the church. If those days had not been cut short, the rapture of the church is described in Thessalonians, especially as Jesus coming back and taking his church and believers out of the world at this time, sometime in between the middle and the end of that tribulation period. And if that time had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, a way of talking about believers, for the sake of those of us who are believers, these days will be cut short, and so on. So that's Jesus talking about the same thing that Daniel's talking about that's going to come, of which I'm suggesting Nebuchadnezzar is a forerunner or an example of how it's going to be. So... Again, most people think that Nebuchadnezzar made a statue of himself to contradict and go against the revelation that God gave him of these coming kingdoms that were going to take over his place. Uh, He did it to go against God or to be immortal. And uh, he set it up on this plane. So, you know, I imagine, just imagine, right, if if you have a 90-foot statue glistening in the sun, gold, and on a plane where you can see it from miles around, Imagine what that would be like. And so, all that to talk about verse 1. Verse 2. It's, it's kind of exciting when you think about it, right? Uh, then King Nebuchadnezzar uh, sent together the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Imagine this. People from every place in this world empire come together on this plane and are all standing around admiring this 
you know, huge uh, image probably of Nebuchadnezzar himself. And, um, and as that's happening, um, leaders from all over his kingdom coming together for this dedication. Again, you can see, if you are familiar, Revelation chapter 13. If you were to read Revelation 13 and put alongside of this, you'd say to yourself, my goodness, this is a parallel passage. This is what's going to happen at the end times, that this image is going to be constructed and everybody is going to be commanded to worship it, to bow down. And this is an attempt at a one-world religion and a one-world government. Okay, and you might have all kinds of ideas about that, but uh, it seems like um, you know, we are moving in that direction in our day as well. A one-world worship service. And uh, all the dignitaries from all over the world on the appointed day are uh, standing there admiring uh, this great statue. Now, just as an aside, um, Babylon was founded by a guy named Nimrod. Nimrod's the one who is thought to have built the Tower of Babel that God destroyed in Genesis chapter 11 by confusing all the people's languages, okay? And um, Nimrod was a great-grandson of Noah, the Noah of Noah's Ark, okay? Uh, but he was a lawless person, and he was behind the building of that tower, and Nimrod sought to establish a one-world religion against God and a one-world government, bringing all the people together together. And when God came, you remember, he confused the languages. And uh, not only that, but Nebuchadnezzar, it seems, is doing the same thing. And the Antichrist, uh, at the end times, will be trying to do that again. Uh, I would suggest, perhaps, in association with Islam. Uh, I don't know how much we all know about Islam, but uh, Islam is both a government and a religion at the same time. It's not like America where we have freedom of religion. We have a government and then we have freedom of religion. In Islam, religion and government are the same. And you can't have the religion without the government of Islam. In Islam, um, the government is called Sharia law. And again, it's very different from what we're used to. But just as God destroyed the Tower of Babel and confused the language of the people... Even so, Jesus' return, the stone cut out of the mountain without hands, will smash all of these kingdoms, and they will all be gone and will establish his own eternal kingdom. And uh, again, I would say that what's going on here is an attempt to unify all religions and all people into one world religion, one world government, but only the God of heaven is worthy of that. And uh, it's very different than what we think here in America. And so it's hard for us sometimes to see uh, the difference between Islam. In fact, there's quite a debate on uh, mission fronts about uh, whether Allah and God can be the same. You know, And uh, there's different approaches uh, to evangelism in Islam because of that. Now, keep in mind that uh, Babylon is the first, right, 600 years before Christ, the first world empire to dominate uh, and, and eliminate uh, Israel. And uh, the last kingdom is called Mighty Babylon. In Revelation chapter 18, the destruction of Babylon is called uh, Mighty Babylon. Babylon, by the way, uh, was located or is located right about where Iran, Iraq, and Saudi Arabia all come together. If you were to look on a map, you'll see right in that section 
of the world is uh, where Babylon was located. And so um, it's a, a significant concern in understanding the scriptures to understand what God meant uh, when he talked about this last superpower. Now, notice the next verse, verse 5. Um, oh, let me do verse 4. A herald proclaimed out loud, you are all commanded, all people, nations, languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Now let me just pause here a second to say that music and worship have always complemented one another. Music and worship. Music has always been significant in worship. They're deeply associated. And I want to suggest to you that music was created by God. Music was created by God. And in the Bible, music is used for at least a half a dozen different you know, purposes. When you track it down, music is used for a lot of things. Like, for example, when the prodigal son came home, they played music to celebrate. It was a happy time. Um, in Matthew chapter 9, uh, there's a little girl who dies, and they played music to lament or to mourn the death of this little girl. So everything from celebration to mourning, uh, music ha- is a part of, and it, it has a, a, a profound effect. And, and I want to suggest to you that um, like everything else that God created, music can be perverted for wrong purposes, like here. Music is being used for this huge crowd of people to get them to worship an idol, using music. And why is that? I would suggest to you that music is a kind of mind control. Music has the power to change us on the inside. Is that not true? When I'm uh, down and discouraged or whatever... I have some favorite music. I put it in our little system. I sit there on the couch and I punch it on. And by the time I'm done, I'm an entirely different person. If I get off of my issues and problems and everything else and get focused on my God, all of a sudden something happens. You have that? It's like a mind control. My wife says, well, she doesn't say. She's learned when I'm grumpy She knows just what music to put in. She turns it up, doesn't say a word. But I know what she's doing. She's trying to change my grumpiness, right? Music is like mind control. It's significant. It's powerful. And um, it can have a controlling influence. Some music calms us down, and some music creates anxiety. Don't you have that? Some music focuses on good things, and some music focuses on bad things. Some music is for God, and some music is against God. And here music is being used to get people to bow down to idols. Almost every cult and every false religion has found a way to use music for perverted purposes. And uh, I would suggest that that's what's happening here. Um, By the way, in Isaiah chapter 14... (laughs) Uh, God is revealing that someday the Israelites are going to taunt the Babylonians, okay? And one of the things that they're going to say is this in verse 11, uh, your pomp is brought down to Sheol, the place of the dead, the sound of your harps. Apparently music was a big deal in Babylon and was used uh, a great 
much. And um, in Revelation, uh, where we see the destruction of Babylon, in Revelation chapter 18, um, there's a really cool verse here uh, that talks about uh, the fact that their music uh, will be uh, put to death, will be buried, you know, kind of thing. In Revelation 18, 21 and 22, uh, here's what we read. Um, Then a mighty angel took up a stone, like a great millstone, and threw it into the sea and said this. So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And uh, the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters, will be heard in you no more. Their music is going to be destroyed along with them. So music is significant. It matters what we listen to because it gets inside of us and it controls us. Now, you know, you can get carried away in either direction on this, but the truth is music is significant. And so music is used here in Daniel to promote this um, idolatry, bowing down to this idol. And uh, everywhere in the Bible, God is against idolatry, right? Idolatry is condemned. It's, it's worshiping anything less than God. It's Setting in our hearts, setting our hearts on something less than God. And you can make an idol out of anything. You can make an idol out of money. You can make an idol out of sex. You can make an idol out of material things. You can make an idol out of compliments. You can make an idol out of anything. And then when you set that in your heart, it competes with God, the fount of every blessing in our life. Okay? And so um, in the final... Uh, Gentile kingdom, this will be kind of how it is. And uh, not only that, but um, Nebuchadnezzar goes on here, uh, or Nebuchadnezzar's guy goes on here, and uh, verse 6 says, uh, whoever does not fall down and worship at the sound of the music shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every other kind of music, all the people's nations' languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the music played, and the people bowed. And so uh, this guy uh, sets up this worship experience, this dedication of uh, this huge image and, and so forth, and... Um, pretty much uh, says, you know, bow or burn, right? Bow or burn. And uh, that's what happened. And so just about everybody bows down. And so I think, you know, how easy is it to get the masses of people to worship a false god simply by threatening their well-being? How easy it is. You think, sometimes I read Revelation, I think, how could that possibly happen? And then the longer I live and the more I see uh, examples of this kind of stuff, I think, yeah, it would really be pretty easy to envision that uh, actually happening. And uh, they were uh, to be burned in a furnace. Now, in Babylon, they had these industrial furnaces, which were used to melt metal and to make bricks. They would fire up, you know, they'd make bricks, and then they'd put them in the oven and fire them to make them hard. Probably around 2,000 degrees uh, is how they did the bricks. And so uh, these were like stand-up ovens, and they had doors at the top, and then they had a door on the side, and if you open the side door to let more air in, the fire could be hotter, right? And uh, that's how they would control uh, the temperature. And so um, they could walk in, set the bricks in, and then light the furnace and uh, make the bricks and so forth. And so an executive order is given to either bow or burn. And just about everybody bows. 
And, uh, you know, I think this is significant because the Bible says, in Thessalonians in particular, that at the end times, there will be a huge apostasy or rebellion on the part of God's people. There will be this huge turning away of people who profess to be Christians, but who don't want to burn, who don't want to suffer, who don't want to be hurt. And, uh, you know, again, Revelation 13 and 14, you can read about how it's going to be and the mark of the beast, the 666 mark, and you won't be able to buy or sell and and all of those kinds of things. It's a parallel to what's going on here. It's very easy uh, to see if you read this chapter and then read Revelation uh, 13 and 14. And so, um, uh, verse 8, next verse. Uh, Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. The Chaldeans, remember, were astrologers who were priests, okay? For 16 years, they've been working underneath Daniel the Jew and his three buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, And uh, they probably don't like it, and they probably forgot after 16 years that Daniel saved their lives, saved Daniel's God, saved their necks by interpreting the uh, dream of uh, King Nebuchadnezzar and so forth. And so they maliciously accused. Uh, The word accused means pick apart in pieces. You ever been accused of something? It's like people just like picking you apart, trying to pick you apart in pieces to destroy you. And so these guys come, and they maliciously accuse Uh, the Jews. Uh, This could be, uh, you know, anti-Semitism, right? It could be jealousy. It could be that, you know what? All those Jews got the good jobs in the government. And uh, now we're, you know, low man on the totem pole and so forth. And so uh, how hard would it be for these three guys to live in that kind of a society where other people are making accusations against them? And uh, again, I would say... uh, the Bible describes end times, um, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Let me read a few verses here. Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. If we're alive during the end times, the last days, as the Bible predicts about it, it's not going to be easy. Now, I, I, I shouldn't get into that, but I really think, you know, that the whole church has been pretty much deceived to think that the rapture is going to happen before all this time. And that Christians don't even pay attention to these kind of scriptures because they say, oh, well, we'll be out of here. It doesn't concern us, so who cares? But what if that interpretation is wrong? What if the rapture doesn't occur until after the furnace is heated? And uh, that's what I think Daniel chapter 3 would lead us to understand. So Paul writes to Timothy, he says, hey, understand this, that in the last days, there's going to come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people as these. For among them are, and there's further description. How hard will it be to to live a God-first life when people around us are all committed to the exact opposite issues that God reveals will be going on, uh, opposite from God? And so, uh, okay, next verse, verse 9. Look what happens here. Uh, They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever which is just a nice way of kind of showing respect and so forth. But, hey, nobody lives forever. 
And, you know, to say to Nebuchadnezzar, who's trying to make a gold image of himself so that he can live forever, so that his name and his kingdom goes on and on and on, you know, to say, oh, king, live forever. We, we got what you're into, and uh, we're applauding you and so forth. Oh, king, live forever. Nobody lives forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these men, O king, pay no attention to you they do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So now the king's embarrassed. This is his big day. This is dedication day of 90-foot uh, golden statue. And these guys uh, are trying to uh, intimidate the king and get the king angry. And uh, they see an opportunity perhaps to um, you know, move themselves forward with the king. And so they embarrass the king on, the, on, the, on this big day. Hey, aren't these your guys? These are your boys. And look at this. They pay no attention to you. Shouldn't they be setting the example? Well, King Nebuchadnezzar, you know, uh, um, look at this, verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage. <laughs> Neb's got some anger issues. And uh, he, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king, Nebuchadnezzar, and he answered and said to them, is it true, you guys, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? This is why I said that his initial reaction to uh, Daniel interpreting his dream is just an emotional reaction. Oh, your God is the God of all gods. Your God is the king of lords. And, and all of that uh, not really thought through too well. And uh, now he's saying, oh, you're not going to worship my gods. Now, in fairness to them, uh, they were polytheists. So uh, they believe that a person could have many gods. And so, yeah, you could say this about the God of heaven, uh, and you could also keep worshiping your gods. Uh, but, of course, uh, from the beginning of the Bible to the end is uh, monotheism. There's only one God. And so uh, Nebuchadnezzar says, you know, is it true that you won't worship me or my gods? And, and uh, if you're ready, he says to them, next verse, 15, uh, when you hear the sound of the horn, the bagpipe, and the, every kind of music, fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Oh, you're about to find out, Neb. You're about to find the answer to your question, you know? Uh, Notice that Nebuchadnezzar is trying to force his religion on the whole world. You are going to worship my God and me. And uh, he's going to have this one world government and one world religion. Uh, it seems like Nebuchadnezzar feels sovereign in his power over everything, even to the point of asking this question, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Like he thinks there's no God bigger than himself. And he thinks, you know, he can just do anything. And um, he's in for a rude surprise. Um, again, in 247, when he said, your God is the God of gods, the God of heaven, and all of that, it was only an emotional reaction. This is a pretty boastful question. Who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? There's no humility here. 
And uh, so then uh, the three guys have their response, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king, and they said, Hey, Neb, um, you know, there's no need to even uh, discuss this. We don't have to pray about it. We don't even have to think about it. Uh, If this is the way it is, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, to answer your question, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. If God chooses not to deliver us, and if we die in the fiery furnace, that's okay. That's a significant response. And that's not just on the moment. That's not just an emotional response. That's thought through. That's a decision that these guys have uh, made in the past. They've already decided, don't even need to pray about it. They're going to be loyal to God, and that's it. And I say, wow, this takes a lot of courage. You know what? Uh, They're confident that God can deliver them, but even if God doesn't, if God allows John the Baptist's head to be cut off, that's okay. He's ready. If God allows Stephen to be stoned to death, it's okay. Not compromising. If God allows Jesus to die on a cross and be crucified, it's okay. It's what I came for. Because why? Because my faith is more valuable to me than my life than this temporary life. My faith and my God are worth more to me than this temporary life. And so I'd like to kind of pose a question for you this morning. Like, who do you think was more successful in life? King Nebuchadnezzar rose to the top, had all the toys, did whatever he wanted, had all the money he could spend. Or these three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego... Who was more successful in living their life? And I ask the question because when King Nebuchadnezzar was confronted with the fact that his demise is in front of him and he's not going to live forever, he does everything he can to hold on to life. But I can assure you he did die. Okay? These three guys, when their life is threatened, they're totally at peace. Who's successful in life, who do you want to be more like when you die? These three guys, who when they faced the end of their life were totally at peace. If God delivers us, hooray. If he doesn't, fine. Sounds like the Apostle Paul. To live is Christ, to die is gain. I'm good either way. Total peace. Or King Nebuchadnezzar, who threatened with his demise, does everything he can in his power to hold on and to accumulate and amass and so forth. What is success in life? And I want to say success in life is a matter of discovering God's will, the one who created you and giving yourself to it. It's success in life. And uh, you want to live your life with the end in mind. And the end is dying and standing before God and having him say, well done, good and what? Faithful servant. And that's what these three guys were. You know, if God delivers us, great. If not, we're ready to die. Why? Because our faith in our God is more important to us uh, than our temporary life. And so, uh, look at old Nebuchadnezzar there. You know, he's really stuck. He's backed himself into a corner. You know, Nebuchadnezzar used to love these guys. Remember, he promoted them, he was excited about them, and so forth. Uh, Look what happens now. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury 
and the expression on his face changed. Um, I wish Dwayne Kellogg, our counselor, was here, could explain to us what that really means. You can learn a lot about a person by the expressions on their face. And King Nebuchadnezzar had backed himself into a corner. He was filled with fury, anger issues. And the expression on his face was changed against the three guys that he really admired and loved in the past. Sixteen years had gone by at least. And so he ordered the furnace to be heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men, his best guys, in his army to bind those guys, tie them up, and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. And then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, uh, and other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Can you imagine this? Who took up Shadrach. So these guys, these army guys, take these three guys, they tie them up, and they climb up on top of the furnace where the doors were to throw them in. Okay? And uh, they burn up in the process. And these three men uh, fell bound into the fiery furnace. Okay? Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished because the side door would have been opened uh, to allow ventilation to uh, heat the furnace up. And uh, King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. And he rose up in haste and he declared to his counselors, Hey, didn't we throw three guys into that fire? And they said, Yes, King, true. And he said, But I see a fourth man unbound. I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. This is what theologians call a theophany, a pre-incarnate visit of Jesus before Christmas. Over the course of the Old Testament, this happened on several times, several occasions. And I think to myself, this is such a picture of what God says is going to happen when Jesus comes back and raptures or rescues the church. Here in the midst of all of this fiery furnace kinds of stuff, all of this, you know, coming against believers and people who worship the true God. And right in the midst of all of that, Jesus comes and shows up and rescues uh, these three guys. It's really kind of interesting. Um, I don't know what to say. Uh, Back here in Jeremiah, it's kind of interesting too. In Jeremiah chapter 29, um, God had spoken to the Israelites who were going to be taken captive in Babylon. And listen to what God says. And I start at verse 20. Hear the word of the Lord, all you exiles whom I sent away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning Ahab and Zedekiah, who are prophesying a lie to you in my name. So here's God sends Jeremiah, the prophet, to say, hey, guys, you better straighten up or this Babylonian captivity is going to happen and God's going to punish you. And here's these fake prophets and preachers running around saying, ah, it's never going to happen. God loves us. You know, we're the chosen people. He would never let that happen to us and, and so forth. But they were putting words in God's mouth. Okay, so look what he, he says, uh, uh, you know, I'm going to do to them what I did to Ahab and Zedekiah, uh, who are prophesying a lie to the people in my name. Behold, I will deliver them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall strike them down before your eyes. Because of them, this curse shall be used by all the exiles 
from Judah in Babylon. The Lord make you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon toasted in the fire, or roasted in the fire. So this wasn't the first time capital punishment by furnace was used. Okay, And so these guys, bad prophets, you can keep reading the whole story, it's very interesting, uh, but this industrial oven you know, had this door on the side, and so King Nebuchadnezzar looks inside, and uh, what he saw really blew his mind. This fourth person was most likely uh, Jesus himself who came and rescued these guys. And so um, another example that you might be familiar with is in Exodus chapter 3 when uh, a voice came out of the burning bush. And uh, you realize it was the Lord speaking to Moses, uh, giving him instructions on how to deliver the people from Egypt and, and so on. Anyway, um, uh, this part of Daniel chapter 3, again, looks forward to that time when Christ will come and rescue his people out from the grip of the Antichrist. Uh, again, I would say in um, Matthew, Jesus talked about this as well. In Matthew chapter 24... And uh, verse 27, Jesus said, uh, For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Uh, Verse 29, Immediately after the tribulation of these days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken, and then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all of the tribes of the earth will mourn, And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. What a day that's going to be. And here we are way back in Daniel with God talking about an event that happens then that's also prophesying uh, what's going to happen when the end times get here. And so... uh, Just to wrap this up, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, verse 24, was astonished. He rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, uh, didn't we cast three men bound into the fire? And they say yes, and so forth. And uh, then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared to uh, these three guys, servants of the Most High God, come out. Again, servants of the Most High God, come out and uh, come over here. And then those three guys came out. Uh, from the fire, and the satraps, the perfects, the governors, the king's counselors, they all gathered around, uh, and the fire had no power over their bodies of these men. The hair on their head was not singed, their cloaks were not um, harmed, and no smell of fire came upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own capital G, God. Have you made that decision yet? Don't wait until we're in the middle of something and somebody's got a gun to your head. The time to decide that is now, like these three guys who decided way ahead of time, my faith is more valuable to me than this temporary life. Because why? Because I have the promise of eternal life on the other side. And I'm not going to be a part of that apostasy and that falling away like the huge crowds that uh, bowed down to this uh, false god. But they yielded up their bodies, and Nebuchadnezzar noticed that. And so therefore, verse 29, he makes a decree. uh, Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. 
And then the king promoted these guys uh, in the province of Babylon. Again, I'm telling you, I think the king has uh, an emotional reaction to this incident. And uh, we'll see why when we get to next week, Lord willing, in chapter 4. God has still some work to do. It's one thing to kind of come back to God. It's another thing to become a God-first believer and to really integrate uh, the reality of who God is into our lives. Nebuchadnezzar seems to have accepted defeat here. He seems to be praising the Most High God and uh, to be praising the faith of these three guys, a faith that's stronger than life itself. Um, Again, have you uh, ever thought through and determined that your faith is more valuable to you than your temporary life? And should this uh, come upon us, Would we be able to be like these three guys and say, you know what? If God spares my life, hooray. And if he doesn't, I'm so secure in the promise that he's made of what's on the other side that that's fine as well. But be it known to you, I'm not going to worship any small g God in my life. And so Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world at that time, uh, acknowledges that no other God can save people from certain death like the God of heaven, the God above all gods. There is none like you. There is no competition. And uh, so no matter what issue you might be facing in life, you need to know uh, this God can help and can handle anything uh, that comes our way. Uh, God's not finished with Nebuchadnezzar, as we'll see. Uh, He's got some more work to do to help him to understand the implications of what he's saying. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, only your word could be like this, describing historical events that then parallel what's yet to happen. And we know from reading other scriptures, Father, that uh, as you in multiple ways warn us about what's coming, just like Jeremiah warned the Israelites about the Babylonians, you're warning us about this last world empire that will seek to create a one world religion and a one-world government, and take over the whole world in defiance of you. But we acknowledge this morning, Father, only you are worthy of worship. You're the God of heaven. You're the God who created us. You're the God who sacrificed his son to buy us back and qualify us to be with you forever. And we thank you and praise you, and I pray that you would help us, that we, Father, would be faithful servants like Daniel and his three friends, no matter what comes our way. And uh, once we have that end goal set, that the more minor things that come our way would be opportunities for us to demonstrate the reality of our faith through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.